0: All right, good morning, church. Good to see you all this morning. We're going to study God's word and open it up together. So if you would, open your Bible to Malachi chapter 3. We're finishing up this series, walking through this wonderful, uh, hard-hitting, end-of-the-Old Testament book From the prophet Malachi and we've been through five disputations we got one left and we'll see it here this morning if you'd follow along in your copy of God's word I'll start reading where we left off last week verse 13 of chapter 3 your words against me are harsh says the Lord yet you ask what have we spoken against you you have said it is useless to serve God What have we gained by keeping his requirements and walking mournfully before the Lord of armies? So now we consider the arrogant to be fortunate. Not only those who commit wickedness prosper, they even test God and escape. At that time, those who feared the Lord spoke to one another. The Lord took notice and listened. So a book of remembrance was written before him for those who feared the Lord and had high regard for his name. They will be mine, says the Lord of armies my own possession on the day I am preparing. I will have compassion on them as a man has compassion on his son who serves him. So you will again see the difference between the righteous and the wicked, between one who serves God and one who does not serve him. For look, the day is coming, burning like a furnace, when all the arrogant and everyone who commits wickedness will become stubble. The coming day will consume them, says the Lord of Armies, not leaving them root or branches. But for you who fear my name, the sun of righteousness will rise with healing in its wings and you will go out and playfully jump like calves from the stall. You will trample the wicked for they will be ashes under the soles of your feet on the day I am preparing, says the Lord of Armies. Remember the instruction of Moses, my servant, the statutes and ordinances I commanded him at Horeb, also known as Sinai, for all Israel. Look, I'm going to send you the prophet Elijah before the great and terrible day of the Lord comes, and he will turn the hearts of fathers to their children and the hearts of children to their fathers. Otherwise, I will come and strike the land with a curse." So in this way, the Old Testament begins with creation and ends with curse. Curse is literally the last word in the Old Testament. It could also be translated destruction. So we moved from creation to destruction, Genesis to Malachi. And at the end of this word curse, God essentially hangs up the phone for 400 years. So that blank page between the end of Malachi and the first page of Matthew's Gospel is 400 years of total silence from God, not speaking through the prophet, not telling people where he is or what he's up to. So that's what happens here at the end of Malachi. But just like, there's patterns that are familiar, right? Just like when the curse came down in Genesis chapter 3 after Adam and Eve abandoned and rebelled against God, right? curses came down, consequences were, were shared and uttered And yet while those curses were being laid out there, there's this cryptic promise about someone who's coming The offspring of the woman who will crush the serpent's head, right? There's this someone who's coming who's going to make everything right again, right? Well, in a similar way, Malachi, at the end of the Old Testament, he employs 14 curse formulas. He's drawing it straight from the books of Moses, drawing it from Deuteronomy. He's deeply steeped in his Old Testament. And he's reciting these curse formulas that fall on those who rebel against God. And yet, Malachi dies and he's whispering a word about someone who's coming, This cryptic one who's coming in the future, who would, a new Elijah, he uses that language, this Elijah is who's coming, and he's going to prepare a people ready for the Lord. What comes through when you put all this together is that God wasn't done with his people. God was still going to reclaim the worship of his people, hence the title of this entire series in the book of Malachi has been a people reclaimed. And it's not just history. We heard a story in the waters of baptism about God reclaiming someone for himself. And we're going to hear another story here in just a moment. So Kathy Woods, I'll introduce you to her via video in a moment. But Kathy Woods, many of you already know, she, she works on our staff here at the Church of Brookhill. She's our city ministries associate minister, does an incredible job job, connecting with, interfacing with partners and leaders across our city, trains and mobilizes members of our church to engage in our city in just amazing ways. Well, here's her story of how God reclaimed her life for himself. Watch this with me.
1: Hi, my name's Kathy Woods, and mine is a story of reclamation and restoration. I grew up with a mom that loved Jesus and had me and my brother in church every time the doors were open. I gave my life to Christ at a young age and was active in the youth ministry all through high school. But right after graduating high school, life got hard and each new bump in the road made me feel further from God and led me further into destructive decisions like drugs and alcohol. My parents got divorced i was facing health issues that resulted in me being told i would never be able to have children i found out my dad had early onset alzheimer's and my mom had huntington's disease Um, my long-term high school relationship ended and i found myself dating and eventually married to an older man that while he didn't introduce me to drugs through abuse violence and flattery um, he he took what was a recreational coping mechanism kind of drug use and um, created a full-blown addiction for me long story short i left the marriage out of fear but i did not leave my addiction behind in order to support my habit i began selling drugs i wasn't just selling a little bit here and there i was selling a good bit Um, i was making a lot of money i was living the good life or so i thought What I didn't realize, though, was how dead I was inside. No amount of drugs could make me feel alive. No new car or extravagant trip could make me feel worthy. No friendship or relationship could fill the void that I was filling. I felt like I was living the high life in every sense of the word, that I was a living, walking corpse. But God had other plans. I can give you the whole long story about having a wire worn on me. Um, being on the run from the police and all that that came with it. But I think we can jump to the important part. I was eventually arrested and was facing a minimum of 25 years for my charges. And no one would come bail me out. It was terrible and hard and everyone there was broken just like me. But there were these sweet little church ladies that came every week to do a devotion with us. I avoided them for weeks. Not because I didn't believe in Jesus, but because I didn't think He believed in me anymore. How could He possibly love and care for me after all the terrible things I had done? But eventually, they wore me down and I went to church with them. And then I went back the next week and the week after it. On the 89th night, I fell on my face in the floor of my jail cell and wept. I didn't even have words, just my broken heart to lay at Jesus' feet. Jesus reclaimed me that night, and I have never turned from Him again. I have an amazing story of how God moved in my life after that. I had all the charges dropped, um, all my other charges dropped, except for a single charge. The Lord moved in my judge's heart for that charge and gave me unsupervised probation. Um, And I never did another day in jail. Seven years later, I had my rights restored. Ten years later, I got a pardon. And God didn't just save me from more jail time. He gave me back that which was lost. 20 years later, here I am with my own children, a loving husband, two degrees from seminaries, and my job is literally to love on other broken and hurting people in our city. What could be a bigger blessing than that?
0: Mm, Yes. Praise God. Mm. I love this line. I was a living, walking corpse, but God. So why is Malachi in the Bible? The book of Malachi is in the Bible because God is unwilling to give up when we have strayed from him. We wouldn't have the book of Malachi if God gave up on people the moment they rebelled and walked away. We've we've seen in Malachi, these, these twin truths, they feel like opposites, but they live in tension. We've seen the truth of the holiness of God, that he doesn't tolerate hypocrisy among his people, so he gets, he gets in and he's edgy and he's calling them to repent and he's saying, there's no life out there, there's life here with me, come, come back to me. So there's the holiness of God, but there's the mercy, there's the compassion, there's the sweetness of the promises of grace that are filled in Malachi. And we saw last week how the ratios of curse to promise are flipped as you move from Disputations 1 to 3 and when you come over to 4 through 6. So here we are in Disputation number 6 and how does this last Disputation begin? It begins with bad words. It begins with bad words. You see there in verse 13, your words against me are harsh, says the Lord. Yet you ask, what have we spoken against you? you have said, so now he's going to say it. Here's what you've said. It's useless to serve God. What have we gained by keeping his requirements? Now, whether they said those words out loud or just thought them is not the point. The point is God knows. God knows what's going on in our hearts. He knows the motivations. He knows the why and the wherefore. So this is Cause them to become apathetic in their relationship with God. And apathy really is the main thread that runs through all of the corrective tone in the book of Malachi. So what's fueling their apathy in worship? And I think the answer is what's fueling their apathy in worship is they're doing the math. And they're saying, this doesn't add up. The things that we're trying to do in our relationship with God, what are they actually changing about our circumstances? What value is it really adding to our lives, right? So you can almost jump in and imagine what they'd be saying. They could say things like, our families came back to Jerusalem. Once Cyrus opened the door and said, you can go back to your homeland in Jerusalem. I know you've been scattered all around the the world and among the nations because of Babylon. I'm saying you can go back home. Lots of people just said, we're comfortable out here. We're fine. We came back. That's got to count for something. We came back to the city of Jerusalem, we still offer the sacrifices. I know there's been some complaining earlier in Malachi about the nature and the the quality of the sacrifices, but look, we're on hard times. Everybody's having hard times out here in Jerusalem these days, so you gotta understand this is what's going on, right? Here's the idea, it's easy to drift towards spiritual entitlement in our relationship with God. We can be tempted in our own lives to kind of tally up the situation, do the math in a similar way and kind of ask the question, so, I mean, really, honestly, what has God been doing for me lately? What has he done for me? So let's bracket the cross. Let's bracket, you know, forgiveness and righteousness from him and eternal life. Those feel a little bit ethereal. Show me the money, right? In the regular warp and woof and in the everyday grind, how is he bringing blessing into my circumstances, right? So I got baptized, did I get the promotion? Somehow no, right? We're doing the math here. We signed up for the parent commissioning on Sunday. Does our toddler still pee in the front yard? Somehow yes. Yes. Right? We, we, we thought there would be some connection between the, the practical grind of life and following Jesus. And yet, there, there's this massive disconnect. What's the real difference that it makes? I mean, those, those are not exact analogies by, by any stretch, but you get the point, right? Jesus, in the pages of the Gospels, he would talk to would be followers. And they would say, we, we intend to follow you. And he'd say, But, but do you? Do you really? He talked about how his disciples would sow the seeds of the word, the good news and the truth, and how the seed would go down and it would look like it's creating this, this plant, this, this budding plant, and yet give it a second, because when the heat of the day and the suffering of the world strikes down and bears down on that plant, all the life goes away, right? The moment things got difficult, they abandoned Jesus. Why? Because Jesus knew this and he sometimes said it out loud that sometimes people only come to me because they want miracles, not me. It's easy to drift toward spiritual entitlement in our relationship with God and envying the happiness of a world without God will destabilize your faith in God. It will destabilize your faith in God. You think about envy. So envy by nature, what does it do? it's blind to the difficult things that are going on in the lives of the people we envy. Right? We, we tend to be blind to that. Whoever you envy, I think this is generally true, whoever it is that you envy, if you knew the truth about their lives, you'd probably envy them less, right? We know in our heads, envy, envy's not like something we aspire to. We know it's not a virtue. Like, we don't wanna get there, it's not flourishing. We know that in our heads. And yet sometimes, isn't it true, we can just get sucked into the vortex of doing envy, finding ourselves envying others, especially envying those who aren't following Jesus. The psalmist even talked about this. He says, in my own experience, I'm just going to say it out loud and tell you what I experienced. Psalm 73, as for me, my feet almost slipped, my steps nearly went astray, for I envied the arrogant I saw the prosperity of the wicked. They have an easy time until they die, and their bodies are well fed. That's the psalmist saying, for a minute, it was really hard. I got super confused. Now, he comes out of the confusion later on, if you keep reading Psalm 73, but for a minute, it was deeply confusing because he says, everywhere I look, it looks like the ball's bouncing away from the faithful, and the ball's always bouncing toward those who don't live toward God some people in Malachi's time in Malachi chapter 3 are in the very same spot what does God overhear them saying he's listening it says and he overhears them saying verse 15 you see it so now we consider the arrogant to be fortunate not only do those who commit wickedness prosper they even test God and escape so they're denying they're shaking their fist at God with impunity Nothing goes wrong, there is no justice, so why don't we just do what they're doing? They're carefree, why don't we live that carefree life? I'm not gonna ask for a show of hands, but I would imagine a lot of Christians in this room have been in that place, have, been, have found yourself in verse 14 saying, why again am I doing this? this? This walk with God, spiritual life thing. What difference is it really actually making? But friend, being, finding yourself in verse 14 should shock nobody. There's a difference between being in verse 14 and staying there. I'll say that again. There's a difference between being in verse 14 and staying in verse 14. So what do we, let's, just, let's talk church culture. Let's talk what gospel culture means, right? So what do we do with Christians among us who are struggling to believe that serving God is really the path of true flourishing. What do we do with those people? And the answer is, we love them. The answer is, we don't berate them. We don't lift a page out of the playbook of Job's counselors and say, hey, here's what it's time to do. Let's back them into a corner and let's lecture them on theology. That's what's going to really help these people who are struggling who are barely holding on to their faith, right? That's going to be our next move. No, we love them in the midst of the struggle. We befriend them. We move closer, not further. We don't isolate. We move in, right? Here's the thing. If God gave up on those who spoke harshly, that's his main issue, right? You speak harsh words against me. If God gave up on people the moment they speak harsh words against him, we wouldn't have verse 13, The words you're hearing in verse 13 would be replaced with a dial tone. That's what you would hear. God hangs up the phone, conversation's over. I heard the harsh words. You think I didn't hear that? I heard it, it's over. Can I just say a word of of encouragement to doubting Christians here in the room this morning? I don't know where you are, but a word of encouragement to doubting Christians. Jesus didn't pick you because you were immovable. He picked you so he could show you how immovable he is. And that's all the difference between moralism and a Christian gospel. It's all the difference, right? Because there are times where we're going to walk through life and it's going to feel like you barely believe, but don't confuse you barely believing with you barely being held. You are held in the grip of grace no matter how strong your grip is. He Holds us. One of the ancient hymns, older hymns used to say, If my hold should ever fail, your wondrous love will never let me go. Now that, that'll sing. That's good news, right? So you find yourself in verse 14 here this morning? Okay. How do we not stay there? How do we not make camp in verse 14? And the answer isn't. So the answer on our way out of verse 14 isn't hey, find your bootstraps and start pulling. That's, that's not the point. The answer is, look to Christ, the sufficient Savior, the, the author and the finisher of our faith. Jesus won't lie about where the life is. He says, I'm the way, I'm the truth, I'm the life. The world's gonna lie about where the treasure is. Jesus will never lie about where the treasure is. Now, there were moments where I, I grew up in a, a Christian home and um, our parents told us the gospel. I was very familiar with the gospel from the youngest, youngest ages. And there were times in my life as a, as a child where I felt like I was, I was so close to the gospel. It was almost like I was inoculated to it. It's like, I'm not sure it's actually hitting me the way it would hit somebody who has a story like Kathy Woods, right? It's just a different kind of story. And so there were days where I could go by and just kind of yawn about it and not really feel the impact of it. There's a, a song our family loves by Switchfoot and it's, uh, it's called Stupid Deep. Um, so the, the idea is, um, is that our souls are ridiculously deep. They're, they're made by God so that the depths of humans can communicate with the depths of God. So there's this hole in your heart that is just stupid deep. It's crazy, crazy deep. And it was made to be satisfied in God. That's verse one. And then it's about a love that's stupid cheap, that you don't have to spend anything to find it, to experience it. So here's verse two, and I love this. What if where I've tried to go was always here and the path I've tried to cut was always clear? Clear. Why has life become a plan to put some money in my hand when the love I really need is stupid cheap? You know, in a way, my story and Kathy Wood's story is, are very dissimilar. Um, and yet, in another way, they're so similar. Because here's the thing um, I'm not on a quest anymore. I'm not restlessly searching for satisfaction wherever it is in the world. Where I was trying to go was always here. Started to realize in the later years, my teenage years, not with these words, but the sense was there that my parents sang over us the answer to the riddle of the universe every night and it just took a while for the coin to drop. And then it was like, it's here. It's the gospel. It's salvation. It's Jesus. It's him. It's the church, right? Why would you call, as this is what Malachi is saying, God is speaking through Malachi, why would you call the arrogant fortunate? That makes no, their joys exist on a bubble and it will pop momentarily. Our joys last forever. Those who deny God's good rule are not the fortunate ones. We are. We're the enviable ones in the world, and not because of any moral superiority, not because of anything in any inherent goodness. What a joke, right? No. no, the only reason we're the fortunate ones is because of the central story that is at the center of the Bible, the gospel, that God saw that we weren't going to escape the darkness we were in, so what did he do? He climbed inside the darkness in our place, In Jesus Christ, steps into the darkness. God the Son takes to himself, the last word of Malachi, the curse. He takes the curse to himself and he and it are pinned to lumber for six hours outside of Jerusalem. And then Jesus drags the curse into the grave and he leaves it there three days later on the morning we call Easter Sunday. And ever since that day, the church has been saying, we're The fortunate ones, grace is ours, right? So what I'm trying to do right now is model for you. This is the language of believing. This is how we don't camp out in verse 14, but we move in another direction. The forgiveness you yearned for was already free. Abandon all your self-atonement projects. Who wants out of verse 14 this morning? Who, who finds yourself in that place? of Your back's turned to God cold spiritually, but you want to make a way out, back into the light, following him. Friend, this morning, look to Christ. It's never too late. Look to him now. Speaking of a new sound, you speak, talk about a new kind of talking. Look at verse 16 and listen to this. At that time... Those who feared the Lord. So we've got a different group of people talking. Those who feared the Lord spoke to one another. The Lord took notice and listened. So God is eavesdropping on their conversations. And then what happens? A book of remembrance was written before him for those who feared the Lord and had high regard for his name. And so we move from bad words to a good book. Bad words to a good book. So, this language of a book of remembrance, what's the idea here? If you're taking notes, it's this The faithful enlist themselves in a written covenant to trust and obey the Lord. It's sometimes thought that uh, the book of remembrance here, or the memorial scroll, it's sometimes translated, that the memorial scroll or book of remembrance here is a reference to what other passages in the Bible call the book of life. I don't think that's what it is. That's not to take away from what those passages are talking about. The book of life is an awesome thing. Those passages are amazing passages. Because in the book of life, God does the writing. And it's indelible ink. There's no removing it. And so that means once a name is written in the book of life, you're justified once and for all. Your name is in there. Nobody can erase it. So that's a, that, that truth from God's word in other places communicates a sense of assurance to Christians and to believers. Awesome passages, amazing truths, but I think this is something different. I agree with Thomas McComiskey who writes in his magnificent commentary on the minor prophets, he writes these words. The more likely scenario in the case of Malachi 3.16, however, is that the people who are faithful set out to enlist themselves in a written covenant to trust and obey God in spite of what the majority of their contemporaries are doing. And here's where he gets that idea from the, the history and the context. So Malachi's written, we've said this before, Malachi's written around the same time as Ezra and Nehemiah. They were all doing work around the same 20, 30 year Period. So remember, Ezra and Nehemiah show up on the scene and they're saying some of the same stuff that Malachi is saying. They're saying, What's going on with the problem of marrying those who don't worship the God of Israel? Malachi talks about that in chapter 2. Well, again, same time period, you back up maybe 10 years to Ezra and Ezra addresses that very same issue. And when Ezra addressed that issue, a bunch of people repented and said, Now we're going to follow the Lord. And guess what they did after they repented? They drew up a document. They drew up a covenant renewal document and they signed their actual names. Here are a few of them. Masaiah, Eliezer, Jerob, Gedaliah, Eloniah, Ishmael, Nethanel, read Ezra 10 verse 18 and following. And it's just 114 names of people who said, I've decided to follow Jesus as it were, right? We're gonna walk the faithful path from now on. We're turning away from unrepentance toward God. Nehemiah does the same thing. So Ezra's done it, then Nehemiah does the same thing. Matter of fact, in Nehemiah, you get to see the whole nation gather together. It's the 24th day of the month. They pray this prayer of national confession of their sins. Big, long prayer. Read it in Nehemiah chapter nine a little bit later. What happens right after they pray this prayer of national corporate confession? This is what happens. In view of all this, We are making a binding agreement in writing on a sealed document containing the names of our leaders, Levites, and priests. Those whose seals were on the document were the governor Nehemiah, son of Hakaliah, and Zedekiah, Sariah, Azariah, and so forth. Down to verse 28. The rest of the people, the priests, Levites, gatekeepers, singers, and temple servants, along with their wives, sons, daughters, everyone who's able to understand and who has separated themselves from the surrounding peoples to obey the law of God, join with their noble brothers and commit themselves with a sworn oath to follow the law of God. It's an actual document written by humans who intend to repent. And they're saying, sign me up, I'm turning. How many other people are turning? Who's with us? Who's in? Here in Malachi chapter three, a book of remembrance was written before the Lord for those who feared the Lord and notice that language, had high regard for his name. Let me ask you this morning, would you have signed it? Do you hold God's name in high regard? Do you live in the fear of the Lord? Understand, there's no such thing as halfway faithful. There's no such thing as partial loyalty. That's a contradiction in terms. Loyalty is loyalty, it's full on loyalty. What what a picture Malachi has here, right? To to stand with the few over against the many simply to declare where your ultimate allegiance is. That's what's going on here. So what's, what's a contemporary parallel in the New Testament era, in our church era where we are right now on this side of the cross? What's a parallel to that kind of activity? I think it's the waters of baptism and the membership role of the church. The baptism waters and the membership role of the church is the church's best effort to say, these are the names of those we know who fully intend to follow Jesus. As best we know, everybody who signed this document, everybody who's on this role, wants to follow the Lord in repentance and faith. The concept of remembering, this book of remembrance, right? It's mentioned in verse 16, and then the concept of remembering is mentioned again in chapter 4, verse 4. A vital element for your future faithfulness is remembering. Every Sunday, what do we do? In a word, we remember. We remember in the singing We remember in the preaching of the word. We remember in the prayers. We remember in the baptistry. We remember at the table. We remember our sin. We remember God's grace. We remember his promises. We remember who we are, our identity, that we are the ones who belong to God. And by the way, that identity, that belonging to God language is used right here, right after they draft this document saying, we're all in. We want to follow you faithfully. God says in verse 17, they will be mine. Who? The signers those who have made covenant with me, my own possession, you see the language, my own possession on the day I am preparing. So bad words, a good book, and finally, the great day. The great day, chapter four, verse one. For look, the day is coming, burning like a furnace, when all the arrogant and everyone who commits wickedness will become stubble. You remember the opening words of the Psalter? In Psalm 1, it talks about the righteous and the unrighteous. And when it talks about the unrighteous, it says, they are like chaff that the wind drives away. Weightless stubble in the wind of judgment. The coming day, he says, will consume them, says the Lord of armies, not leaving them root, or branches, But for you who fear my name, the sun of righteousness will rise with healing in its wings and you will go out and playfully jump like calves from the stall. You will trample the wicked for they will be ashes under the soles of your feet on the day I am preparing, says the Lord of armies. What's going on here? The Malachi ends his book by looking backward and forward. Looking backward to Moses the law, and forward to a new Elijah, the prophets. You, you see that in verse four. Remember the instructions, and so now we're looking backwards. The instruction of Moses, my servant, the statutes and ordinances I commanded him at Sinai or Horeb for all Israel. Look, now we're looking forward. I'm going to send you, future, the prophet Elijah before the great and terrible day of the Lord comes. So, the Old Testament, if you just put the whole body, the whole corpus of the Old Testament, you can set that under two major headings, the law and the prophets. And if you wanted two significant figureheads over each of those massive categories to correspond to them, over law, you've got to have Moses, and over the prophets, you're going to have Elijah. So these are the two massive Old Testament figures for the law and the prophets. It's interesting when you come over into the New Testament and Jesus is with just a few of his disciples on something called the Mount of Transfiguration. And in that moment, it's revealed, the identity of Jesus Christ is revealed from heaven to Jesus and just a few disciples and only two Old Testament characters are brought from heaven down to the mountain to witness it. And guess who they are, Moses and Elijah. The law and the prophets. The law and the prophets would bear witness to the Messiah, Jesus Christ. All the key players are there tipping their hat and saying, he's the one. We talked about it. We prepared you for it. And now he's here. The end of this book, and God says, I'm going to send you the prophet Elijah. Which is, again, I call that cryptic because Elijah died 500 years ago. Elijah was a mid-9th century, actually early 9th century, so high 800s is when Elijah was here. And now we're in the mid-400s. Elijah's been gone for a long, long time. How are we going to look forward and see somebody who died 500 years ago? And the answer is somebody's going to come and he's going to be a lot like. He's going to remind you a lot of Elijah. Right before Jesus the Messiah appears and is introduced to the world, Elijah's full-on doppelganger comes out of the wilderness and he is strange. He is an odd bird. He eats weird stuff. He lives in weird places. He's got a bullhorn and a death wish. He talks to powerful people in ways that threaten his own life. He fearlessly proclaims the need for repentance. His language, much like Elijah, is the language of cataclysm. He would say, listen, Listen, I need everybody to hear me. The ax is laid to the root of the tree and the tree's coming down and everybody who's not repenting will fall. And this one, he points and he says, this one is the lamb of God. So what was the name of the new Elijah when he arrived on the scene? John the Baptist. Matter of fact, Jesus' disciples later on, they don't know that that's the answer. And they asked Jesus, they said, so curious, theological question, Bible question. Whatever happened with that prophecy at the end of the Old Testament? Malachi said, Elijah's coming. And Jesus says, oh, he came. His name was John the Baptist. God's last prophet pointed to the promised one, Messiah. The final day of Christ's return will end evil, restore what sin had ruined, and give rise to joy. So Malachi speaks about the end of all things as a time of both judgment and joy. Judgment because the evil will become stubble and the coming day will consume them and joy because the faithful will leap like calves from the stall. So you see this tension of judgment and joy. Fascinating. End of the entire Old Testament body, right? And Malachi 4, the first and second comings of Jesus are smashed together as if it all happens in one stop right but in history we know that those are two stops that they're separated by time why are they separated by time and we know the answer it's because God right now is being patient with the world inviting them to repent it's his as the new testament writers would say it's God's long suffering and his desire for you to repent that delays the coming day It's merciful. The door of mercy is open now. Hurry up and get inside before the floodwaters start rising is the idea. God is patiently drawing people, maybe here today, maybe your name, maybe he's calling your name today and he's saying the door of mercy is open. What are you waiting for? Get in here. Maybe he's calling people from all around the world, all the nations, to experience his mercy instead of his judgment. Understand this, just because we are living in a day of grace where the door of mercy is open doesn't mean judgment has been averted. Oh no, it's still coming. The warning that ends the Old Testament is not absent at the end of the New Testament. Matter of fact, the end of the Old Testament and the end of the New Testament are quite similar except in one key way. The last word of the Old Testament is curse, and the last word of the New Testament is grace. Curse is literally the last word in the book of Malachi. And grace, go find it, Revelation 22:21. 21. Grace is the last word in the New Testament. What's it sound like for God to reclaim the worship of his straying people Think about it, Brook Hills, at a corporate level. What's it sound like? It sounds like you and me helping those caught in verse 14 make it out. Walking with doubting friends, struggling friends, and saying, hey, together, let's look to Christ. Let's look outside. Let's not look in the mirror. Let's look in the window. Let's see Jesus. It, it, it sounds like us committing ourselves with God's strength to lifelong faithfulness to the Lord. It sounds like you and me not holding back anything in our worship of God, inviting our neighbors to join us and inviting the world and the nations to join us as well. So there's corporate calls to what it looks like for us to be reclaimed for God and his worship. But personally, can I just come back to this personally? Why is Malachi in the Bible? Because God is unwilling to give you up when you've strayed from him. And wouldn't this morning be the perfect day to turn around? (laughs) to find his arms wide open. What if where you've tried to go was always here and the path you tried to cut was always clear? Friend, you were made for the worship of God. You can't flourish anywhere else. This is where the joy is. This is where the answer, the secret of the riddle of the universe is here. We've been singing it all morning. Trust it. Trust him.